On this week's episode, we welcome CIA agent and Patricia Inuqua. Our CIA operative that I've known for decades are joining us in the black, in the dark, incognito with a map somewhere in the world. And Patricia Nuqua with the Independence Women's Forum is back with us. And she's going to play the role of journalist today. She's going to get the chance to ask the questions to uh, our operative. But I want to start it out with this. Um, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Armstrong. So all of a sudden, um, the press in Haiti is telling us that the four mercenaries who assassinated and shot the wife of Jovenel Moise have all been killed, and so everything is hunkadory. How in the world can someone go into the private residence of a head of state? Where was his security? Where was the military? How did he gain access to his bedroom at 1 a.m. in the morning? The government, the intelligence community, everybody was in on this. This man was assassinated, and now they're trying to make us believe because they found four mercenaries and took them out. Everything we supposed to be okay? Do they think we're stupid? What is going on? What is going on in Haiti? It's in chaos. It's a terrible mess that they have down there in one of the most difficult places on the planet. The fact is, the first thing you always look for in a situation like this is who benefited from this event? What person gains something? From this event that's a question that's yet to be answered but the fact you, you nailed it with you get into the house at night past security the conspiracy would have to be a lot larger than just a lone assassin and it takes resources to do things like this significant resources to move people around and organize things like this so the questions will still be asked i'm sure some of it will start to leak out here in the coming days because conspiracy, something like this, is very difficult to keep completely concealed because too many people know about it and too many people won't benefit from it and they'll be inclined to talk. It'll be interesting to see who gains the most from this, whether it's financial or political position. But the gain piece will be something to look for. Patrice, um, your follow-up or insights? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a stunning example of, uh, you know, the chaos and leadership uh, that has plagued Haiti since, frankly, it's independent. Uh, and I think it's going to be difficult for the next leader. From what I understand, there's even questions as to who the rightful constitutional leader of the nation should be right now. Uh, and the Supreme, the head of the Supreme Court there recently passed of COVID-19. So I think it's going to be questionable. But my question for Mr. Keyes is about, um, you know, when do you think we're going to start to hear answers? And do you trust an investigation into this assassination? Now, I would I would certainly hope that there's some type of international group or, or I wouldn't necessarily say the, uh, the UN, but the Caribbean nations, CARICOM, something that could be chaired to do an objective investigation with the government that's still in in place there and try and find out what really went on. The U.S. doesn't have the resources to do it or the credibility, I don't think, down there to do something that would be believed. But I would go, I would first think of the CARICOM structure from the Caribbean nations who are pretty straightforward and have a lot to lose 
and all this with all their banking resources that are down there. This is an ugly event, and it should be thoroughly investigated. You know, um, President Biden had a press conference on Thursday discussing uh, the September 11th Afghanistanian pullout. I, I know you, um, sir, feel as though that we are sitting ducks, that American policy in Afghanistan has been a complete failure. And even when the um, Taliban goes into these provinces, uh, um, many people just surrender. The Taliban pays them money, they hug and greet each other, and it's given some encouragement to the Biden administration and also to the intelligence community. But obviously, the Taliban is taking over all these provinces. It's just a matter of time whether they're in complete control. And the other thing that we don't mention in this is that President Biden is only continuing the policy of President Trump where they reached a truce where the Taliban committed to not supporting al-Qaeda and disrupting and killing um, and destroying Americans' installations there and killing Americans. And so this is just a carry-through of the Trump administration that um, this would have happened, that the Americans agreed to pull out. But why is it that the president continues to have to talk about this, not want to talk about it? And why are Americans so vulnerable even now between now and the, seven, the official 1711 uh, withdrawal? We're in a situation when you, the decision was made, there's a couple of factors that, that are worth raising. One is the continuity of president to president decisions on key things like this. The, the date for the Trump administration was in May which would have given a window of time to get organized and to, to arrange a pullout. We changed presidents, and then arbitrarily the next administration changed the date to 11 September, which is a dangerous pick. I mean, I, I really am at a loss to understand why they would pick the anniversary of the attack, because the pullout will then read in history in the Middle East as though they defeated America and it took them 20 years to eject us, but they did eject us. But in the interim period, you've got the drawdown window, which you're normally vulnerable whenever you're leaving a, a location anyway, because main, main side resources, air cover, things that you have in place to protect you all begin to draw down. And as you leave, you become more exposed and more vulnerable to attack. And there are indicators clearly on the ground now that they want us to leave, but leave in a way that humbles and, and shames America. And they're on a track to do that. The Iranians are, have a very close relationship with the Taliban. The Iranians some two years ago made an arrangement, the IRGC did with the Taliban, the guys who grow opium, primary growers, to buy their product inside of Afghanistan, and the Iranians took control of the exportation process. So a steady stream of money without the commensurate risk of distribution internationally has kept the Taliban very well funded over the intervening two year, past two years. And our negotiations just strung along, and now we're in a position where we're leaving and we're very exposed. You know, the way you spoke. They left the you know, you, really bizarre. You spoke of the Iranians, and the Iranians are demanding that the Iraqi prime minister resign and totally just um, leave uh, Iraq as soon as possible. Uh, how vulnerable are we? They want all American interests 
gone. This is the final phase, I believe, of what happened after the invasion occurred in 2003. 2004 is when we really began to lose our footing there because of the the Iranian policy was not fixed. We didn't address what happened in 2004. And we've been on the wrong side of history on some of these things since. Now we're at a position where the Iranians know we're leaving. Uh, Khatami is a decent guy. He's not a particularly dynamic guy when it comes to leadership, but he's not a fool, and he's been told to get out. I don't see him falling on his sword and staying until they kill him, but there's a, also a move afoot. Maliki has been working steadily behind the scenes, uniting the PMUs, uniting the operational capability that, that comes from the militias. The only one he really doesn't have under the umbrella is Sadr, and Sadr, when he makes statements, he just made another one today, he expects to be killed because he's the, he believes he's the last obstacle in the way of America leaving and the takeover of the country. It's just, it's a formula for disaster when you have this kind of a paramilitary activity that's going on inside the country funded and supported by an outside nation, assuming that 50% of the population is just going to roll over and go with it. It's Iraq will be a bloody mess with this. They're not going to be able to do what they're planning on doing. It, it, it may ultimately occur, but it's not going to be an easy ride for the Iranians. But they're prepared to do whatever's necessary because they know we're leaving, and we're the only ones that can really put a thumb on the scale and change the outcome. Patricia, your foreign policy question? Yeah, just to jump in there. So being forward-looking, <clears throat> the United States seems to be withdrawing from the, the region pretty substantially with this, with, with this uh, drawdown. What happens if we want to be back on the ground again? What happens for, for strategic reasons if we need to be there? How difficult is it going to be to be able to ramp back up if, God forbid, something happens where we need to be back in Afghanistan or in the region in a, with, with a show of force? And how are we going to be able to rebuild the relationships with, um, with people on the ground who we have leveraged for their intelligence um, as interpreters as assets, how is that going to happen if, God forbid, we need to be back in this area again with a stronger uh, show of force? Those are excellent questions, and it, it leads right to the question of the credibility of the United States. If you decide to help the U.S., you have to have a reasonable expectation that the United States will not just leave you high and dry, and that'll be very difficult to recover that rep reputational damage from it. But I'm praying that we don't leave totally if we have to leave the main area in Baghdad or draw the embassy down, that we, we relocate into the Kurdish areas and stay inside Iraq with the capability that we need to protect ourselves and our interests there. But it is there's a lot of decisions that are need to be made. It's unclear whether they're being made because there's not really much going on that you can see, and there's not a lot being said from the White House on this. This is a major foreign policy realignment, and it's a major defeat of the United States. It's ugly to look at, but it's there. In Afghanistan, we have a model that does work in Afghanistan. We used it in the 80s. The warlord system there is still there. It's an age-old system, and the Taliban has to deal with them. But those are leverage points that the U.S. could use if they continue to come up 
short on how they want to deal with Kabul. Why, why, why is it? Is it any different uh, when former President Trump was in the White House? Did these issues exist? And is it more perception that Biden and his administration appear to be weak on foreign policy and it's being exploited? I mean, you look at the humanitarian crisis uh, in Syria. I mean, it's so out of control. I don't think people realize just how devastating that situation is. Yeah, Syria is spilling out out of control terribly. There was 19 Turkish soldiers killed yesterday in fighting with the Kurdish groups there. This the situation, I think the contrast is President Trump, for all the chaos and noise and commotion that surrounded everything that he did, overseas, people realized and they watched the U.S. White House Twitter feed, they watched the U.S. information circuit from the, from the White House because they believed that if, if Trump said he was going to do something, he would do it. And he, he would, if he gave his word to somebody that this is what we're going to do, he stuck to it. And that's a shortfall right now with the, the Biden administration, because there's questions that come through these informal networks to people like in my former field, where you, you, you get to know a lot of international figures that they don't change seats the way we change seats. We change assignments in Washington, like people change their socks. And other parts of the world, they, they have leaders that have seen us through four, five, six presidencies. So they have a measure of balance on what the U.S., when the U.S. is working well and when the U.S. is not working well. And the perception right now is we are perceived as weak. There is a sense of disarray and confusion in Washington. They don't know who really is wielding the authorities here and how decisions are made. Those processes are important for foreign allies as well as enemies to correctly assess where the U.S. is going. Because as you make your moves internationally with your national security policy, a lot of it is designed to, to signal where you're going, where your red lines are, and how you avoid war. And when there's confusion in that matrix, you leave yourself open for accidental things that can really get out of control. And we've had some things like that with Iran that have just blown up in our face when you have nose-to-nose -nose militaries or naval forces, for instance, in a remote part of the world, and you've got 20-year-olds on guns on both sides, and stuff happens that you don't anticipate, and you struggle mightily to control the aftermath if something bad happens with with a an armed confrontation with a, with two different groups on different sides. It's a dangerous time right now. Well, and listen. we look vulnerable, which which generates energy in the opposition to seize the initiative and act now while there's an opportunity. Well, it's not a look. The fact is we are vulnerable. It's, yeah. it's, it's irrefutable. listening to this week's episode.